Jesus, worthy are you of good and beautiful songs written that for centuries your name might be exalted and remembered and lifted up. Worthy are you, Jesus, of our collective worship that hundreds of people should gather in this room for your honor and for your help. And so, Lord, I pray now that in mercy you might bring help to us, your people, in such a way that we might give honor to you. So have mercy on us now by your word and your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you are incredibly observant people, and in the name of removing a distraction, I'll run the risk of creating one. Some of you are are looking closely at the pulpit and you're saying, is that a bicycle water bottle holder that... And I think they zip-tied it to the pulpit. Yes, this is, it says Schwinn on the front. We got it at Walmart, and I zip-tied it to the pulpit because I couldn't find the duct tape. (laughs) And so, if you're a guest, welcome to North Wake. It's, It's really not about the building, okay? It's really not. It's about the people of God gathered to hear the Word of God, and today we are um, finishing our study of Matthew. Um, we've been in Matthew for about a year and a half, uh, nearly, nearly 60 messages you have sat under, and so it's a bit of a review of, of sorts, and it's always uh, my happy privilege to quote the Apostle Paul who says in Philippians, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So today we'll we'll review and remember, and I want to begin by reminding you of a story I told in the midst of Matthew about a test that Professor Scott McKnight gives on the opening day of his class on Jesus of Nazareth. He writes in an article, he says, I give a standardized psychological test divided into two parts. The results, he says, are nothing short of astounding. The first part is about Jesus, and it asks students to imagine Jesus' personality with questions such as... Does he prefer to go his own way rather than act by the rules? And is he a worrier? The second part asks the same questions of the students. He says, um, instead instead of things like, is he a worrier? It asks, are you a worrier? And he says, the test is not about right or wrong answers, nor is it designed to help students understand Jesus. Instead, if given to enough people, the test reveals that we all think Jesus is like us. Introverts think Jesus is introverted, for example, he says, and on the basis of the same questions, extroverts think Jesus is extroverted. McKnight's personality questionnaire, someone has said, confirms what the French philosopher Voltaire said three centuries ago, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. You know, if if one thing we've learned uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is not like we expected him to be. This is not the Jesus of our imaginings. Um, And so today, we want to complete that study. Our goal remains what it's been throughout, to draw near to our good and mighty King Jesus, to know him as he truly is. 
with all the twists and turns. And today, as we review the, the book, I really want you to ask two questions. What have I learned about who Jesus is? What have I learned about my good and mighty King? And what have I learned about what it means for me to follow Him? What has God been pressing me to do, to be, in response to who Jesus is in Matthew? That's what I want you to think about. You're not going to hear anything new if you've been around today, but you are going to be reminded of things that God has been showing to you. I want you to listen today for the Spirit's prompting about what He has been teaching you so that you can remember it and you can do it. Now, as I mentioned, we've been through nearly 60 sermons in Matthew. They are all on our website. So today, when, when God reminds you of that which He's saying to you, you can later this week go back to our website and re-listen to that particular teaching on that particular portion of Scripture and there's a good chance that I'm not going to touch on what God may have been speaking to you about today because we simply obviously don't have time to go through all 28 chapters today. But what I'll try to do is present a little bit out of each section. And if you have your Bibles in your lap, open to Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning, and you can kind of flip along. Be reminded of what God was teaching you, what He was saying to you. Uh, low these 60 sermons. Um, the first section, the first four chapters of Matthew are really our introduction to King Jesus, the good and mighty King. We meet Him here. And He starts, if you'll notice, the very first verse with a genealogy. And it, it's, a genealogy is kind of a series of historical snapshots of stories unfolding throughout history by means of a carefully crafted list of names that all lead to a single life. And this lengthy genealogy throughout generation after generation after generation leads to Jesus. And it's carefully crafted. It starts with Abraham, you'll notice, with whom God covenanted to bless beyond his wildest dreams. Through him, specifically through his seed, through his son, all nations would be blessed. God said to Abraham, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so all these names, all these stories in the genealogy, they point to the one who is that seed, who is that son, Jesus the Christ, the son of Abraham, the one through whom all nations will be blessed. Fourteen generations later, if you look a little farther down there, you'll find that it comes to King David. Really, uh, the high point of the Old Testament when David was walking with God, all, all kings who followed David were evaluated by whether or not they were like David, a man after God's own heart. Did they follow David's ways or not? And David is the king that God promised would always have a son on the throne of God's kingdom. Jesus is that son of David who reigns on the throne forever. So there are these specific pointers to who Jesus is, but more than that, we see that the whole Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus, leading up to Jesus. 
In the genealogy, if you flip over a page or two in your Bible, you find that it's followed by the, the accounts of his birth, the humble birth in the stable. Um, so very humble. Yet, yet ruling kings were threatened by his birth. It's just one of those pointers to who he really was. Great authority wrapped in humility is one of the themes about Jesus in Matthew. Flip over another page to chapters 3 and 4 and you'll see that the king's ministry begins. And in chapter 3, John the Baptist is preparing the way for him. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And John the Baptist has baptized Jesus and there's this threefold miraculous spotlight on Jesus. The heavens are opened, the Spirit descends, and the Father's affirming voice is heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And if there's, if there's a single thing that seems to be at the forefront of his pleasure in his son at this point, it is his, his humility, his, his lowness. And it's the whole ministry of Jesus in Matthew is shaped by this. His lineage is shaped by this. It's, it's pockmarked with the unlikely and the unknown and even the shocking. His birth proves it. He's born in an obscure village amongst animals. His choice of disciples proves it. They're, they're fishermen and tax collectors. They're, they're commoners at best. His ministry amongst the poor and the outcasts proves it. He's touching bleeding women and lepers. He's holding and blessing little children. His submission to the Father proves it, whether in His baptism or on the cross. His silence before His accusers proves it. There's no rebuttal. There's no self-defense. His bearing of the cross proves it. Ultimately and finally, He humbled Himself unto death, even death on a cross. And here in our passage, His baptism does prove it. As Jesus takes His place amongst lowly sinners to be baptized by John for repentance and forgiveness of sins, Jesus is baptized not because He shares our need, but in order to bear it. In His baptism, Jesus is pointing to the cross where He truly would bear the sins of the world. Jesus is in His baptism standing with sinners, really standing in the place of sinners. If you're going to follow Jesus, humility is not optional. His whole life is, is wrapped in this humility. Now, in the next few chapters, we encounter what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. We could also call it the King's Speech. And it fills chapters 5 through 7. It is the greatest of sermons. And one little piece in the middle of all that, Jesus teaches His disciples. He teaches us how to pray. You're, you're probably the most familiar part of the entire sermon. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus wants us, he wants his disciples to pray that, that God's name would be hallowed, that God would hallow his name, that he would cause his kingdom to come, his will be done, all this on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants us to be praying about the things of God. Kingdom matters. Jesus wants you and me to be praying about these big things. And these often slip off our radar. So tonight, in this room, 6 o'clock, you have a chance to gather with the church and pray about the big things of the kingdom together as Jesus intended. You pick up on that togetherness in the very next few verses. He continues saying, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not in temptation but deliver us from evil. And so we pray about personal needs for bread, for forgiveness, for deliverance, for provision, for mercy, for protection. Um, But it's interesting. You notice that it's all plural? It's not give me my daily bread. It's give us this day our daily bread. And it envisions the church gathered together to pray about our needs. Okay. And again, you can do this. Every month we gather, Sunday night, to pray for an hour and 15 minutes. And now some of you are thinking, I can't pray for 15 minutes, let alone an hour and 15 minutes. But together you can. You come, you'll see, it goes fast. You can do this. We can do this together. And we will tonight. Well, in the next cluster of chapters, we see the king's power and authority on display. We've met him in the king's introduction. We've heard the king's speech. We've heard him teach. And now we see his power and authority on display. Chapters 8 and 9 contain 10 miracles. Healing a leper, a centurion's servant. He calms a storm, casts out a demon. He heals a paralyzed man. He raises a little girl from the dead. He heals a woman who's been bleeding for 20 years. Heals two blind men. Heals a man who could not speak. All these and many more healed by Jesus. At the end of chapter 9, there's this beautiful summary of Jesus' ministry. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. On a number of occasions, it says Jesus had compassion for people. And Jesus always responds, always acts. It never says Jesus had compassion and he walked away. Never says that. His compassion always led him to action. Sometimes he heals, sometimes he teaches. Sometimes he even raises the dead. So powerful is his compassion and his power. 
But you need to know that when you are feeling harassed and helpless, this is how Jesus feels about you when you feel farthest from Him, when you are struggling the most, when your suffering's at its greatest, Jesus has compassion on you. And He acts on your behalf. But in this case, he looks on the crowds, he's filled with compassion, and he acts, but this time he doesn't act in the way we would expect him to. Not this time. There are no decrees issued that remove all their suffering, their hungers are not filled, their illnesses are not healed. Not this time. This time, Jesus, this is what Jesus' compassion drives him to do. He turns to his disciples and he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. It's interesting, the action that Jesus is compelled to do by His compassion for the multitudes who are suffering like sheep without a shepherd is that the disciples should pray for workers to go out into the harvest. This, again, is not what we would expect Jesus to do. We would expect a miracle, or at least we would expect a strategy to meet the needs. But just to pray? Really, is that the best you've got, Jesus, to ask your disciples to pray? And the answer would seem to be, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And something becomes very apparent at this point. Prayer must matter a great deal more than we think it does. If Jesus sees this as the great response to the needs of thousands that he sees suffering apart from the Father, it's as though this is the most powerful response imaginable. Have the disciples pray. Send out workers. Prayer must matter a great deal in Jesus' mind. It is the great hope of the crowds, these praying disciples. Jesus is inviting us by our prayers to join in his compassion for the great multitudes who do not know him as their good shepherd. And so this makes us examine how we pray. Um, Do we pray? Is prayer a first thing for us, a priority commitment for us? Jesus has great confidence in His disciples' prayers, in your prayers. Jesus dispatches workers to those in need when you pray. If you turn to the very next chapter, chapter 10, Jesus sends all His disciples out on kind of a training mission. And in the section that follows, we see opposition to the king. It it begins to really pick up. And in response to the increasing opposition, Jesus now begins to teach in parables and withdraw increasingly to Gentile, non-Jewish regions. And there he begins training and calling his disciples to a great commitment in following him. Chapter 13 alone in Matthew has just shy of a dozen of Jesus' parables in it. Everything from sowing seeds to mustard seeds, from hidden treasure to a fisherman's net. You come away from this thinking, Jesus can tell a story, okay? 
And if you are one of our uh, seminarians who is training to teach and preach, learn from Jesus. Learn to tell a story. Story is the thing that carries truth into people's lives. Okay? Jesus tells a dozen of them almost in chapter 13. Here's one of them. Verse 44 of chapter 13. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The point of the parable is pretty clear. It's worth it. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. The kingdom is worth it all. It's worth whatever you have to pay for it. You'll be glad you did. There'll be no regrets. So great is the joy, Jesus implies, you won't even consider the cost a sacrifice at all. If you remember when, when we taught through this section, <clears throat> I shared some of those amazing garage sale stories that you all wish you were part of. Guy buys a, a record, an old 33 and a third kind of thing for 75 cents. It's worth 25,000. A little girl buys a comic book for two bucks. It's worth 48,000. A guy buys a bike for five bucks. It used to belong to Tour de France winner Floyd Landis. It's worth $4,000. See, they don't walk away from that saying, man... Wish I had the $5 back I paid for that bike. Wish I had the 75 cents back I spent on that record. They don't say that. It's not even a cost. They don't even remember it. Jesus says the kingdom's like that. It's worth it all. Okay. Whatever it costs you to walk with Jesus in his kingdom, that's the path of no regrets. No regrets. Jesus wants you to live and walk in joy in his kingdom. That's why he teaches about it so much. He wants you in. He wants you happily all the way in. Make sure you get in. Treasure getting in. Now, as opposition ramps up in this opposition section, Jesus now really begins his journey back to Jerusalem. Everything points towards the cross now. And in chapter 17, Jesus has this amazing encounter up on the mountain. They call it the mountain of transfiguration. You remember that? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And down in verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this should sound familiar to us, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We read on, it says, when they lifted up their eyes, the disciples who were there, James and John and the others, they saw, they saw no one but Jesus only. And that's the point, okay? It all points to Jesus only. 
the light, Moses and Elijah, the voice, it all points to Jesus. That's why the voice says, listen to Him, not listen to them. It's about Him. It's about Jesus. Jesus is exalted here as one greater than Moses and Elijah, the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets pointed to. Scholars like to point out there's a lot of Moses motif in Matthew. A lot of the things that Moses did, Jesus did. And they, they kind of say he's like the new Moses. I'm not sure that's the best way to think about it. He's like the new and improved Moses, okay? He's greater than Moses. He's the one exalted above Moses. He alone and indeed is the beloved son with whom God the Father is well pleased. We really should listen to Jesus. Do you have time in your day to listen to Jesus? Is that a pattern of yours? Are you too busy for Jesus? Or do you have time you protect for the most important person in the universe to speak to you through His Word? Do you regularly find yourself in a time and place set aside to listen to God through His Word? Can you show me that time and place on your calendar? Is it that important to you? Jesus is the beloved Son of God whose glory is brighter than a flash of lightning, who is greater than Moses and Elijah. You really should listen to Him. And in the Bible, to listen, to listen rightly, is to obey. Because, it's so important, because Jesus is saying things no one else is saying. He is calling us to a life that no one else is offering. Flip over to chapter 20. I'll show you a classic example. Jesus, following a conversation about leadership and the way secular or even religious leaders were leading in his day by exercising authority over people. Jesus says to his disciples, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Something greater than greatness is being offered to the disciples of Jesus here. There's no room for comparative or competitive greatness in Jesus' teaching. There's only room for humble service. That idea that um, whoever would be first among you must be your servant. The word there could be rendered minister. And it's used for someone who waited on tables. An ancient waiter. An ancient busboy. Jesus is calling you to serve like a busboy. And more. It goes on and says, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Someone has defined a slave in Jesus' day as the non-person who has no rights or existence of his own, who exists solely for others. Jesus is calling you to be a slave who exists solely for others. You may remember um, 
this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He says it so beautifully. He says, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. If you want to follow Jesus, then you have to serve. Just, just as he served, it goes on to say in verse 28 of that chapter. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is just a matter of days away from laying down his life as he's nailed to a cross when he says this. Jesus does not call us to something which he is exempt from. No, he calls us to that which he exemplifies even as the Son of Man, serve, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He became our ransom. It took His life to pay our ransom. We really must have racked up a huge debt if it took the life of the Son of God to pay our ransom. But Jesus stooped to the lowest place, to our place, to the cross of criminals and nobodies, to pay our ransom. What wondrous love is this? And then in the next chapter, in chapter 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. For that final week. You can call this section from here to the end, it's the king's passion, his suffering. And during this time, the conflicts with the leaders escalate even more, and Jesus is holding back no punches. He says in chapter 23, famously, woe to you, seven woes in this, in this passage, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness." So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is warning them in the strongest of terms. He is warning us about making our faith for others to see, about externals over internals, about appearances over substance, about a show. Okay. Jesus says that's hypocrisy. When our faith becomes first, what others can see so that others will see us, when it's more about the outside of the cup than the inside, about ritual or activity than real heart transformation, then Jesus says, we're hypocrites. And Jesus has no use for hypocrites. To follow Jesus, we must drive out pretense. We must repent of the show if we're really going to follow Jesus. 
And as we walk on through his last week, Jesus is teaching in the temple often. One of the things that he teaches about is the future, about his return. And Jesus' principal concern in that teaching is that we would be ready when he comes. Chapter 24 Way down in verse 43, Jesus says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Have you ever had somebody break into your house? Just not, uh, It's been probably a month ago, maybe a little bit more. We had somebody try to break into our house. Um, they, didn't, they did not succeed. But if somebody had told me on that day that somebody was going to try to break into our house, um, I'd have been a fool not to have been ready. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say? If somebody said, hey, somebody's breaking into houses in your neighborhood. He's coming to your house today. I'd have been a fool, an absolute fool, not to have been ready. So if someone said to you, your house is about to be robbed, and you kept leaving the door unlocked, what would that make you? Listen closely. Jesus is warning us that a thief is coming to our home. Most certainly he is coming. Jesus knows because he is that thief. How is Jesus like a thief? Just in this one aspect. He is coming unexpectedly when you least expect it. And to be caught off guard, unaware, not ready, once you've been warned, is to suffer the greatest of losses. It's not that the people in Jesus' stories about the future were doing terrible things. You remember those stories? There were a couple people working at the mill. One was taken and the other was left behind. They were just doing that. They were doing everyday things. They were working in the field. They were working at the mill. There were no orgies or bank robbers going on. Dale Bruner points out that the evil here is immersion in the everyday without thought for the last day. Jesus is forewarning us, a thief is coming unexpectedly, and he is that thief. So he says, therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, 2444. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Live ready. Live ready. He is coming at a day, an hour, when we do not expect Him to come. On a normal day, just like any other day, just like this day. So we must be ready every day. Live ready. It's interesting when Jesus says, you also must be ready. It's really, y'all must be ready. It's plural. It's more than one. Y'all must be ready. And you get the sense that readiness happens best when we're together, okay? When we're in small group, 
when we, when we are connected with other Christians who, who help us be ready. Okay. And then we move... As we wrap up to the night, Jesus was betrayed with Judas arriving with a crowd bearing clubs and swords. And Jesus says to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And that last sentence tells us what this is really all about. Jesus is radically committed to the will and plan of his Father. He will not depart from it. Though he could call down some of estimated 70,000 angels, he refuses. No matter the greatness of his suffering nor his sufficient ability to stop it, Jesus is the faithful son. He will follow his father's plan. His prayer in the garden is now being played out, not my will but thine. And that takes us to chapter 27. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, and then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Max Lucado writes, he says, the cross did what sacrificed lambs could not do. It erased our sins for eternity. The cross did what man could not do. It granted us the right to talk with love and even live with God. You can't do that by yourself. No matter how many worship services you attend or good deeds you do, your goodness is insufficient. You cannot be good enough to deserve forgiveness. No one bats a thousand. No one bowls 300. No one, not you, not me, not anyone. That's why we have guilt in the world. That's why we need a Savior. That's why there was a cross. You can't forgive me for my sins, nor can I forgive you for yours. Two kids in a mud puddle can't clean each other. They need someone clean, someone spotless. We need someone clean too. That's why we need a Savior. That's why there was a cross. And in chapter 28, just a couple of weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we celebrated this. Behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And the resurrection, we talked about, assures us 
that we are forgiven our sins. We really are. We live now with hope, even in the darkest of days. We can live faithfully. We live differently and we die differently. We grieve the loss of those we love, but not as those who have no hope. We know that the best is yet to come. There's an old Ann Landers column. It's attributed to a fellow named Roger William Thomas, and he describes a woman who was diagnosed with a terminal illness and given three months to live, and she asked her pastor to come to her home and discuss her final wishes. She told him which song she wanted sung at her funeral, what scripture she wanted read, and which outfit she wanted to be buried in. And then she looked at him and she said one more thing. She said, I want to be buried with a fork in my hand. And the pastor said, excuse me? And she explained, she said, in all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, I think she was Baptist, she said, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably say to everyone, keep your fork. It was my favorite time of the dinner, she said, because I knew something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie, something wonderful. So I want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand and wonder, what's with the fork? And then I want you, pastor, to tell them, keep your fork because the best is yet to come. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that changes everything. It changes the way we live and it changes the way we die. Let's go back to those first two questions. In the last year and a half, as you've said under maybe almost 60 sermons, the Gospel of Matthew, what have you learned about Jesus? And what does it mean for you to follow Him? Let's pray. Father, have mercy upon us. Give us ears to hear. Help us be quick to obey your kind and gracious word to us on the life of your son, Jesus, and our lives as we follow him. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I want to encourage you as the team leads us in this closing declaration of worship to Jesus. Uh, if, if you sense that you know what God wants you to do and you want to come forward for prayer and bow down here in front and kind of set that apart, as worship to the Lord and covenant with Him as He gives grace for you to follow through in that, I would encourage you to do that. And our leaders are always available in the front rows down here. Some of our women's ministry leaders and our elders and pastors will be in the front rows. We'd love to pray with you.